0: Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today I'm speaking with a research scientist at DeepMind, which is probably the most advanced developer of machine learning systems around today. As you may know, DeepMind was the outfit that first beat top Go players with a system called AlphaGo uh, back in 2016 to much fanfare. Since then, it has developed another ML system called AlphaZero, which can actually learn to play chess at the very highest levels with just one day of self-play on DeepMind's own processes. And more recently, DeepMind has been working on a system called AlphaStar, which now plays StarCraft II at the level of the world's top professional gamers. DeepMind itself says that its ultimate aim is to solve intelligence uh, and develop a general artificial intelligence that can reason about uh, and help humanity to solve uh, any problem, basically. All of that is obviously very impressive and exciting, uh, but regular listeners will know that I worry about how much we can ensure that AI systems continue to uh, achieve the outcomes that their designers uh, and the rest of us are pleased with as they become more general uh, reasoners and are given uh, gradually more autonomy to, to intervene in what is a super complicated world. Naturally, that is something DeepMind takes a big interest in and has been hiring researchers to work on. If DeepMind succeeds at their mission, uh, the products that emerge from their work and, and research could, could end up making choices everywhere uh, across human society uh, and even end up having more influence over the direction of Earth originating life than uh, than we flesh and blood humans do. So with uh, any new technology as powerful as this one uh, could be, uh, it's it's really essential that we look ahead and devise ways to make it as robust and reliable as we possibly can. Unfortunately, that's just what today's guest is working to do. So here's Pushmeet. Today, I'm speaking with Pushmeet Coley. For the last two years, Pushmeet has been a principal scientist and research leader at DeepMind. Before joining DeepMind, he was a partner scientist and director of research at Microsoft Research. And before that, he was a postdoctoral associate at Trinity Hall in Cambridge. He's been an author on over 300 papers, which have between them been cited at least 22,000 times. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Push Me. Thanks. Uh, I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you on uh, social media and uh, I have to say I've never gotten so many enthusiastic uh, s- or question submissions from the audience so uh, unfortunately uh, for all of you we're only going to be able to, uh, only going to be able to get to a fraction of those. I expect we'll get to cover uh, how listeners might be able to contribute to the development of AI that consistently improves the world uh, but first as always um, what are you working on at DeepMind and why do you think it's really important work?
1: So I joined DeepMind, as you just mentioned, two years back. And in the past, I've worked in a variety of different disciplines like uh, machine learning and game theory uh, and information retrieval, computer vision. When I first sort of came to DeepMind, I uh, realized that the amount of work that is happening at DeepMind is just quite at a different order from what uh, it is at other sort of institutions. And uh, I quickly realized that making sure that the powerful techniques that we are building are stress tested and are robust and can be safely, can be deployed in the real world is a topic of extreme importance. And uh, all the sort of founders of DeepMind actually were very uh, supportive of this particular view, like Demis, Shane, uh, Moose, they're all sort of very clear on this path that we really need to deploy uh, AI and machine learning techniques safely. Safely. And so that became the focus of uh, uh, my initial work, which is making sure that machine learning techniques are robust and safe when we deploy them in the real world. Uh, More recently, I was also made in charge of the science program, At DeepMind, where the idea is we want to use techniques from AI and machine learning to accelerate progress in scientific disciplines. Uh, Science, we think, is a source of great sort of challenges as well as great opportunity. And it's one of the key tools that humanity can use to solve some of the key challenges that we are facing. So our AI for Science program aims to do that.
0: Yeah so so you you're the research leader on these two different projects uh, AI for science uh, as well as uh, the, the secure and robust AI team um yeah maybe, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about like what what exactly each of those teams does and how, how do you balance your time like with with so many responsibilities
1: so uh, let me start by the uh, safe and robust uh, AI team the idea behind this team was to make sure that the, all the systems that we are developing and the tools that and techniques that the machine learning community is developing can be properly sort of uh, stress tested and we can sort of check consistency with the properties that we would expect these systems to have. And uh, if these systems are not behaving like consistently with our sort of specifications, how can we encourage them to behave or conform to the expectations of society and finally how can we formally verify that their behavior is consistent not just based on some statistical argument but a formal mathematical argument where we can prove that uh, these techniques will conform the properties we expect
0: so the statistical approach is kind of sampling and being like well most of the time it seems like it falls within these parameters so that's fine whereas it, and like the formal one will be like proving that it can't fall outside particular bounds yes absolutely talk, talk a little bit about that the ai for science uh project and, and maybe like what what kind of things really excite you what, what are the potential outputs from these projects that you think could, could really improve the world
1: so um science like <laughs> is a very broad area <laughs> yeah. right uh, and it is one of the key sort of topics which uh, gives us a way to understand about the world that we live in and even who we are. In terms of the topics, we have no sort of constraint on, on topics. We are looking for sort of problems in the general area of, uh, of science, whether it's uh, biology, whether it's physics, whether it's chemistry, where uh, machine learning can help and not just that machine learning can help a way of doing machine learning where you have a dedicated team which works works with conviction towards a very challenging problem uh, could help. So if a problem can be sort of solved by using machine learning, off-the-shelf sort of machine learning techniques mm-hmm. by uh, some PhD student or some postdoc, then that might not be a good sort of uh, project for us because we are in this sort of unique position where we have some of the best and most talented sort of machine learning researchers. And uh, we have the ability to galvanize these people towards one very ambitious goal. And so we are looking for, we, we look for projects where that approach really can make a difference.
0: Yeah, so, so what, what are some of the kind of concrete problems that you think machine learning can, can help with?
1: So one of the problems that we have already sort of spoken about is the work is our work on protein structure determination. So if you uh, know about uh, like proteins are the building blocks of all of life yeah. right and everything about our own bodies is sort of uh, informed by how proteins interact mm. with each other and they are like the machines they are these sort of nano machines that are operating our mm. o- sort of our whole body we see the effects of it mm. but actually these uh, these uh, micro machines are mm. actually what are making us work so, Understanding how they work has been a key sort of challenge for the scientific community. One aspect of uh, that challenge is, if you have a protein, which uh, you have specified as a sequence, can you figure out what would be its structure? Because in many cases, the structure actually informs what kind of work that protein does, which uh, other proteins it will bind to, uh, whether it will basically interact with other sort of agents and and so on, and this has been a long-standing problem in uh, sort of in proteomics. How do you infer uh, the structure of proteins? And uh, there are people who have sent, uh, spent their PhDs in trying to find a structure of one protein. <laughs> so so it's an incredibly hard and challenging problem. And uh, we took it on as uh, because we thought. Uh, it can really, if we make progress in this area, it can uh, it can have a very dramatic effect on the community, and uh, so this is an example of one of the the problems that we tend to look at in the science team.
0: Yeah, so uh, so if we manage to kind of solve the protein folding problem, I guess that helps a lot with designing medicines that have to interact with any proteins that are folding, and you're like because you, then you know their shape, and then you can like potentially f- play with them.
1: So protein, as I as I mentioned, protein structure sort of informs protein functionality. That is the hypothesis. In many cases, it it does. And then in terms of protein functionality, it has implications for antibody design, uh, drug design, various different sort of very challenging problems that different um, scientific disciplines have been trying to tackle.
0: If listeners in five or 10 years time found themselves saying, wow, like DeepMind made this amazing product that is like, uh, made my life better. what, what What do you think that would most plausibly be? So maybe it already is uh, like you know, improving maps or improving like, lots of services that people use online uh, in- indirectly.
1: I think the way DeepMind thinks about this sort of uh, issue is in an abstraction. Like in- intelligence is an abstraction. In some sense, it's the ability to solve many different tasks. And that sort of informs how DeepMind is structured, how DeepMind operates. We are not looking at one specific sort of task. Of course, we need tasks to ground the progress that we are making on intelligence, but we are working on this overall enablement technology, which can enable a lot of different tasks. So we don't sort of evaluate ourselves on what did we do on this particular task, but we generally evaluate us on what technologies uh, did we develop and what did they enable.
0: So you're trying to do like more fundamental research into kind of general intelligence or like intelligence at a, at a broader level rather than just single applications.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. But at, at the same time, I have to say that tasks are extremely impo- important because they ground us. They tell us, they inform us how much progress we are making on this very Otherwise, challenging. Disconnected. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So
0: on the on the uh, safe and robust AI team, I guess, what are some of the problems with kind of current or like near future AI systems that that, that your uh, research is hoping to, hoping to fix?
1: Yeah so i think this is something that uh, the machine learning community as a whole is uh, sort of thinking about if you think about the history of uh, software development people sort of started off uh, developing sort of uh, software systems uh, by programming them by uh, by hand and sort of specifying exactly how the system should behave we have now entered an era where we see that Instead of specifying how something should be done, we should specify what should be done, right? So, for example, this whole sort of paradigm of supervised learning, Mm. where we show examples to the machine or to the computer that for this input, you should provide this output. For this input, you should provide that output. You are sort of telling the machine what you expect it to do Mm. rather than how it should do it. And
0: then it's meant to figure out itself the best way to do it.
1: It has to figure out the best way way to do it. But part of the challenge is that this description of what you want it to do is never complete. It's only partial, right? This is a partial specification of the behavior that we expect from the machine. So now you have trained this machine with this partial specification. How do you verify that it has really captured what you wanted it to capture? And not just memorized what you just told it. And that's the key question of generalization. Does it generalize? Does it behave consistently with what I had in mind when telling it, uh, the, when giving it the input out for examples? And that is a fundamental challenge that all of machine learning is sort of tackling yeah. at the moment.
0: Yeah, how big a problem do you, do you think this is? And I know there's kind of a range of views, uh, like within ML and, and outside of ML. But I guess some people think oh, you know, this is a problem like any other, and we'll just fix it as we go. Whereas other people are more alarmed, thinking now this is like a really fundamental issue that like needs a lot of a lot of attention. Uh, what, what, did you have any view
1: on that? I think machine learning uh, sort of people have thought about. It's not as if it's a new problem. Generalization has been studied. The question of generalization has been studied ever since the beginning of sort of machine learning. Like, what are the inductive biases? What will uh, m- a sort of uh, machines learn? The question becomes much more sort of challenging when you put it uh, in the context of the complexity of the systems that we are developing today. Because the systems that we are developing today are not simple linear classifiers or not simple SVMs. They are much more complicated, non-linear systems with variable compute and like a lot of different degrees of freedom. And to sort of analyze exactly how uh, this particular model behaves or generalizes and which specifications it would be consistent with is a new type of challenge. So in some ways it's the same challenge that we have all, always been looking at but in other ways it's a completely different part of the spectrum.
0: So so I guess the concern might be that you know as uh, ml models have to like interact with the complexity of the real human world trying to like actually act and like Im- and improve things. Uh, there's like a lot more ways for them to, to to act out of like how how you expected them to than when they're just playing chess, where it's like a much more constrained environment.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I mean, if you think about software systems, right? Uh, if you are thinking about a software system for, I don't know, like you wrote a program in uh, sort of basic or your first sort of program in C plus plus, and you don't really care about like what it what it did, like when you, when you when you're starting. But if that program uh, gets installed in say an aeroplane yeah or the electricity grid or the electricity grid. you should care (laughs) and and so even the software industry has uh, sort of considered this problem right there's a there's a long history Uh, you would sort of uh, remember like uh, what used to happen with windows the blue screen of death it was sort of uh, it was quite common it was uh, but it was a real technical challenge Microsoft at that point of time was uh, dealing with a lot of uh, different, was building a sort of framework which could interact with various different devices. And uh, it was a challenge to be able to deal robustly. And yeah. the last sort of two or three decades of work that has happened in formal verification, in sort of uh, testing software systems, has come to the point that we now sort of expect the failure rate of uh, these operating systems and so on to be extremely yeah. small. Right? It's not as common as we used to encounter in the in the, the 80s 90s, and right.
0: 90s. Is, is there a concern that you know when, when Windows 98 had a problem it would have to blue screen of death and stop whereas like, it's possible that machine learning algorithms when they have a problem they just kind of boldly go ahead and like do things that you didn't intend and maybe you don't notice until later
1: I mean that's that sort of uh, that is a problem that happens with software systems generally right So termination analysis for example, is an incre- incredibly hard sort of problem. How can you sort of verify that and a method will terminate? And so, if your software system does not halt, it is still a very big problem. Yeah. It doesn't go away, right? Yeah. So, uh, in some sense, I don't think we should have that, that that distinction between normal software systems and machine learning systems. I think they are uh, there is the it is the same problem. It's just that. Which software systems are also being deployed in mission-critical syst- uh, mission sort of domains. Machine learning systems are beginning to be deployed in uh, mission-critical sort of domains. Software systems are complex and machine learning systems are also complex, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I think the complexity is is very different. and The scale is very different. The underlying problem is the same, but uh, the types of challenges that appear are different. And as machine learning and AI sort of techniques are deployed in many different sort of domains these challenges will become even more more critical
0: is there any way to explain in kind of plain language uh, the, the the approaches to to ai robustness that that your team is is working on
1: so we all we sort of mentioned this particular view that when we try to test someone one way to test them is basically ask them a bunch of questions right so suppose uh, you are trying to test a particular sort of individual, you, uh, you are interviewing them, you ask them a few questions, and, and then you use the answers and how they performed on those questions to get a good sense of who they are, right? And in, in, in some sense, you are able to do that because you have some expectation of how people behave. Right. Because like you, you and of, I, I have experienced it with humans. Yeah, exactly. And because you are yourself a human.
0: Mm, right. OK. Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but when you are sort of reasoning about some other intelligence, then like a bird, or, yeah, yeah, like a, bird, a trickier, yeah. then it becomes trickier. Even though we, we might sort of share the same sort of uh, evolutionary building blocks for reasoning and so on, mm. the behavior is different. Mm. So that's uh, that comes to the question. Now, if there is a neural network. In front of you and you are asking it sort of questions you can't make the same assumptions that you were sort of making with a human and that's what we see right mm. uh, in ImageNet, you ask a human what is the label of this image and uh, even experts are not able to identify all the different labels because there are a lot of different categories and there are subtle differences a neural network would basically give you a very high accuracy mm. yet You slightly sort of perturb that image and suddenly it will basically, uh, it will tell that a school bus is an ostrich, right? And so what we are trying to do is basically go beyond uh, that simple approach of uh, taking a few questions, the traditional sort of view of taking a few questions and asking those few questions. What we are sort of thinking about is, can we reason about the overall sort of neural networks behavior? Can we formally analyze it? Can we see what kinds of answers uh, it can give and in in which cases does the answer change
0: so that makes total sense i guess you're like trying to like more formally analyze what is kind of the, the envelope of it or like what's what's the range of behavior that a machine yes. learning system uh, can yes. can engage in yes. r- beyond just like sampling within like the normal range of questions that you might, might
1: might give yeah so the traditional approach would be that you take a particular input And then what you do is basically you take that input and then you see how that input leads to activations in neural network. And eventually the neural network gives you an answer. And then you can sort of see the path that the input took through the neural network to reach that sort of answer. What we are doing is we are saying we are not going to ask you one question. We are going to ask you a space of questions. And now we are going to see what is the response to that space of uh, space of questions. All throughout the network. So in some sense, we are asking the neural network infinite number of questions at the same time. How, how do you do that? So the way a we a do lot of it, compute. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to do it sort of uh, naively, you would spend the compute of the universe and still not be able to uh, sort of verify uh, even a very small uh, image net mm-hmm. network. Or even a sort of, for an MNIST network, you will not be able to sort of uh, specify even uh, even if you use all the computation in the universe. How we do it is by basically saying, let's try to uh, encapsulate or let's try to sort of represent that space compactly. Not by those infinite points, but by certain sort of uh, geometries which allow us to capture that space in some low complexity. Right. So now, like if you are sort of if you are trying to bound uh, infinite, if, if you think about all the sort of points in this particular room, there are infinite of them. Right. But they are bounded by just uh, these four walls and the ceiling and the, and the floor. So just these th- six equations of these planes mm-hmm. bound all the infinite things that are inside this room.
0: Right. You kind of, kind of kind of try to shrink the full space into like a, like lower
1: dimensionality. Is that the idea, or no? We we so we are operating at the same sort of dimensionality. We are just representing that space compactly. Okay. Right. We are using fewer things to uh, sort of uh, to represent that space. And now we are say we are going to say how is the uh, space of questions? So we have now. So there are infinite sort of questions in this particular space. Yeah. But the space itself is only sort of uh, represented by, I don't know, like uh, eight equations or yeah. 10 equations, right? But there are infinite sort of uh, questions that live in that space. And now we are going to see how the neural network answers these infinite questions okay. yeah. rather than just one question. And then it becomes tractable. Once you and define then it that way. Yeah.
0: exactly. So, from reading a blog post that that you published, I think it was a month ago, uh, towards robust and verified AI specification testing, robust training, and formal verification. Uh, which is, it's great that you have this uh, this uh, safety safety research blog. I think it's I think it's on Medium. We'll stick up a link to it so people can check it out. There's a lot of great posts on there. Uh, it sounded like you don't only uh, take that approach. You also try to like actively seek out the, the the specific like niche cases where the system like might act completely differently from what you
1: intended. Exactly. So that's like adaptive testing. So the people who have given uh, the SAT test or GRE mm-hmm. would, uh, uh, there is some sort of adaptive testing, mm-hmm. right? So you answer a, one question and then you're uh, you're asked, the, the, the question that you're asked depends on the answer that you gave, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So this adaptive way of questioning also is much more efficient than just, I will pre-populate the 10 questions and you have to answer me the 10 questions if i can choose which questions i'm going to ask you depending on the answers that you're given me then i'm more powerful in finding sort of uh, places where you might be inconsistent or you might sort of give the wrong answer
0: so, so you pose a question to it and then you get the answer or you, get, well, you get a range of answers then you choose the worst one and then you move from there and then like try a bunch of similar questions that are even harder and then like get get the, take the worst answer from that and then like keep going until you just find the most perverse like outcome that that you can they, yeah you, you can search for
1: yeah, so at a, at a high level, at a at a simple level, this is how the technique works. But in some cases, you might not even know that in the first sort of question, the first answer, for example, you, uh, you ask a sort of a car to drive from point A to point B. So what is the answer there? The answer is basically you look at uh, how the car is driving from point A to point B. And just the behavior of how the car sort of uh, drives from point A to point B gives you a lot about... The, how the car is probably reasoning. So there is no perverse thing that it did. It basically did it correctly. Mm. But it gave you a lot of insights as to how what might be that policy thinking about. Yeah. Right? And that informs your next question rather than you selecting, oh, going from point A to point B, point C to point D and so on. So the next point that you decide is informed by you observing how the actual sort of car drove itself.
0: So how confident do you feel about these methods? You're like, yeah, we're, we're, we're killing it. We're going to solve this problem. It's just a matter of, of like improving these techniques.
1: Yeah. So then if the answer is obvious, then it's not a good question for DeepMind <laughs> to answer. Yeah. Right? So DeepMind is in some sense in a unique sort of position, right? Where we are working in this ecosystem where there is academic research, there is industrial applied research, and then there is AI fundamental research. And we have our unique sort of strengths in the sense of the, how we are structured, the conviction with which we sort of uh, counter, uh, sort of go for problems and so on. So in some sense, that uh, always sort of forces us to ask the question: is this the most challenging problem that we can work on yeah. and contr- and is this the best way we can contribute to the community?:
0: So you want, you want to push the envelope? Yes. Yeah. There's there's another group at DeepMind called the Technical AGI uh, Safety Team. Are are you familiar with with what they do and and how it's
1: different from your own work? So the Technical AGI Safety Team reasons about AGI, right, where uh, it talks about (coughs) what are the issues that might come up as intelligent systems become more and more powerful, right? And as basically systems become extremely sort of powerful, uh, these questions of does the system align with my incentives? Like there are other sort of safety issues that come uh, in at that spectrum. So uh, the machine learning safety team and the technical AGI safety team are two sister teams which work very, very closely with, with each other. We share the techniques, but the problems that we sort of look at are at a spectrum where the technical AGI safety uh, safety team is looking at problems which are extremely hard, but are going to happen in a few years' time, while the machine learning safety team is looking at uh, maybe sometimes using the same sort of techniques at problems which are happening today. Yeah. Yeah, so
0: what is the relationship between this like, kind of nearer-term AI alignment and the, the longer-term like, uh, artificial general intelligence issues? Do you think that one is just naturally going to merge into the other over time uh, as, as like, the, the, the AI systems that we have get more powerful?
1: Uh, one would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's all about like, the fundamental issues are quite similar. Right. So if you think about value alignment or specification consistency, right, they, they, like we, we talk uh, about these things in the near term and long term uh, safety uh, sort of regimes as uh, in, in these ways. But uh, at the basic level, the problems are quite similar.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like just just two years ago, I heard a lot of people say that you know, the short term issues with ML systems are like quite different from the long term issues, and working on the problems that we have now like won't necessarily help with the long term issues. But that that view seems to have become like much less common or much, much less fashionable. Uh, have you noticed that as well, or is is that just kind of the, the people that I know?
1: Yeah, I think there is a gradual sort of uh, realization that uh, some of the many of the problems are shared. Now, of course, the long term AGI safety. Uh, Research has some unique problems, which the short-term doesn't have. Yeah, uh, do do you know some of those? One of the things is, when we talk about specification at the moment, when we think about deploying machine learning systems, we are talking about in a very specific domain. So the specification language, the way we express what we want the the machine to do, can be constrained. The language needed for specifying what the behavior should be can be limited. But when you talk about an AGI and agi basically can solve any problem on the planet in principle in yeah. principle yeah. right so then what is the language in which you specify how do you communicate how do you communicate to that uh, to that very powerful sort of agent yeah is is, a, is 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 a unique sort of challenge do you think we'll end up having
0: to use uh, like human language just like the, the most like high bandwidth like method of communication that we have with other people maybe it's the highest bandwidth method we have with uh, like an ai system as well
1: so it goes back to the question that our intelligence evolved in a particular way, and in some sense, there is a good coupling between language, human language, and human intelligence, right? So, what come first? What came first, right? But the, but uh, but there is some sort of notion that human intelligence is able to sort of deal with the concepts expressed in human language.
2: Yeah.
1: Now, uh, a very powerful intelligence, a different intelligence might have its own sort of language, might it might it have its own sort of concepts, might have its own abstractions. Uh, but in order for us to sort of uh, communicate between it, we'll need to either build a translator between those two languages or somehow try to make sure that the intelligence that we are building conforms or is very similar to human language so that it can understand the same sort of abstractions and concepts and the properties that we expect of systems.
0: Are there any other differences between the kind of work that you're doing and the work that the AGI, or any different challenges that the AGI team faces that are, that are worth highlighting?
1: There are sort of at the at the at the very high level, uh, the problems are quite similar, but the the practical sort of uh, machine learning systems uh, throw up a number of different sort of issues, and some I I think are shared, but like the. The question of uh, privacy and security, and, uh, and these are all sort of uh, sort of questions that are true in both sort of contexts. So I, I don't think there are many sort of problems yeah. which are different. Yeah. The approaches and the and the and the problem instances might yeah. be sort of different, yeah. but at the basic sort of level, at the abstract level, the problems are quite similar.
0: Thinking of a, of another, uh, I guess, division between different kinds of work, I think one framing that a lot of people have about AI safety and, and reliability, that there's kind of, there's some people who are working on capabilities, like making AI more powerful. And then there's other people, perhaps like, like you, who are working on, you know, reliability and safety and alignment and all of that. Yeah. And it's like, uh, I guess the, the extreme version of this view is kind of like, well, the capabilities people are kind of creating the problem, and then like you're you're cleaning it up, you're, you're you're fixing it up and making it better, and like solving the issues that are that are arising. And then and then, impossibly on that view, you think, well, wow, working on capabilities is like possibly even harmful. It's just like, not not clear how helpful that is. I think this is a view that's like was more common in the past, and is like has, has also been like fading. But but do you have any comments on uh like w- yeah, whether that's a, a good a good way
1: for people to conceptualize uh, the, the, the whole the whole deal with uh, ML progress? Yeah, so that's, that's a very interesting question, right? Uh, a lot of people sort of see ML safety work as a, sort of a tax, hmm. right? That you have to pay this tax to make sure that uh, you are doing things correctly, yeah. right? Safety is sort of uh, something that you want, like uh, you don't want, like, you, you, like it's, it's something that is sort of necessary, you have to do it, but yeah. the, it, you're not driven by it. Uh, I don't see it uh, that way. In some sense. So it's not, I, I don't think basically uh, an organization which is doing safety work is paying a tax. In fact, it is to its advantage. So how do we explain this? So suppose uh, we were, you and me, uh, have, took a unique mission. And the mission was that uh, we are going to uh, drive a car around the planet. Okay. And so one approach is you sit in the in your car seat and you drive off. Without putting your seatbelt. And the other issue would be, you put your seatbelt on. If we were just going from point one to point B, and like maybe one kilometer, the probability of uh, an accident is so low that you might actually reach the destination without putting the seatbelt on. Yeah. But if your destination is so far, you we are sort of circumnavigating the whole sort of world. Uh, if we think about the probability of who reaches the end, yeah. you will see the person who... <laughs> who so put out in the feedback makes a meaningful difference. Exactly, so it's about enablement. It's not a sort of attacks. It's basically enabling the creation and development of this t- these technologies. I can't remember who, but
0: someone gave me this analogy to bridge building. Where they're like, we don't have like bridge builders, and then like bridge safety people who are completely separate from the yeah. people who build bridges. It's like <laughs> it's not a bridge unless it doesn't fall down. There's yes. no like <laughs> anti anti falling down bridge like exactly. specialists. it's exactly. Like that's just part of it. Yeah. I guess you're kind of saying there's like, it, it's not meaningful to talk about like building good ML systems without them reliably doing what you want. That's like an absolute core part of, of what, of like how you design it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Is, is there any kind of steel man of, of this position that like, well, maybe we don't want to speed up like the some sort of, cap- well, at least like some sort of capabilities research. Um, we might prefer to like delay that until we've done more of the kind of work that you've done. Uh, perhaps we like want to like put extra resources into into this kind of alignment work or yeah or reliability work, uh, but, but you know as early as possible.
1: Yeah, so I I think the answer to that question actually is very uh, contextual. In certain sort of contexts, uh, people have already sort of uh, made that case that when you try to deploy uh, machine learning systems in very safety-critical sort of domains, Mm -hmm. you ought to sort of understand what is the behavior uh, of these systems. And in in other cases where you are trying to do some experimentation or the proof of concept and so on, it's fine. Right, uh, to to be able to sort of do that sort of stuff for fun and, and, and so on, and to, and to see what are the limits mm-hmm. of things, yeah. uh, but uh, but I think there is a spectrum, and the answer is sort of uh, contextual. It's, there there is no sort of uh, clear answer.
0: Yeah. Is it generally the case that work that improves like AI capabilities or allows it to like do new applications or have, have better insights also increases safety as, as you go or also increases alignment as you go? Because that's just like part and parcel of like improving algorithms.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in, in, some, in some sense, if you think about machine learning, what is machine learning sort of, I sort of think of machine learning as a, a translation service so machine learning is a translation service where you bring it some specifications or some specifications of what behavior you want out of your system and it translates it into a system which claims to have those properties right and so what are the what is inside that uh, inside that box inside that translation system it has various different inductive biases like either in the form of regularizers or uh, machine, different types of machine learning models which have different inductive biases and uh, different optimization techniques and so forth. But all of those sort of uh, uh, techniques are essentially trying to solve this translation problem, converting your specification, which c- could be input-output examples or could be just the input examples in the case of sort of unsupervised or self-supervised learning, or it could be sort of interactions with the world. And translating it into uh, sort of a classifier or a policy, uh, depending on the problem type.
0: I imagine there's some listeners out there who know quite a bit about ML you know, considering doing, doing careers in ML, and they would think that kinda, their passion is doing the kind of work that you're doing or the work that the, that the AGI team is, uh, is, is, is doing. Imagining that they, could, like, that they couldn't actually find, like, there's only so many people doing this alignment, you know, reliability work. Imagine that they couldn't get one of those positions, but they could get some other general ML role, to, you, know, you know, improve their skills. Um, but then they're like nervous because like, oh, ultimately what I really want to do is the kind of thing that you're doing. What What kind of advice might you give them? Would you just say like dive in and like you'll you, you'll be able to we' like kind of in any role you can find some some reliability you know uh, thing to contribute or or at least you'll be able to like change into a more like reliability uh, focused role later on.
1: Machine learning uh, generally and the robustness sort of problem are not sort of uh, different from each other. In some sense, every machine learning practitioner should be thinking about the question of generalization. Does my system generalize? does my is my system robust? so these are sort of problems that not shows a, up everywhere is this this is everywhere right yeah. so the the key sort of advice that i would give to people is when they approach the problem they should not uh, sort of approach it from the uh, from the perspective of well if i take this particular input apply this tool i get this output yes. uh, but think of it as to why that happens or what are we after and how will we get that instead of well here's a very uh, there, here's a very sort of systematic view of like what needs to be done, but not h- how it, uh, we should work, but what are we after?
0: Yeah. Are there any ML projects or kind of research agendas that don't carry the label safety that you think like are like going to be especially useful for safety and reliability in, in the long term? P- people wouldn't think of it as like an especially like reliability focused like project, but it turns out that actually it is like, it, it is going to have a huge influence on that potentially. Any, any that stand out?
1: So uh, I think anything to do with op- so optimization. Right, so optimization is a general sort of area. It's not tied to robustness, or it's not tied to even machine learning. Right, optimization is used in a various in, in a in a general sort of context for various different uh, sort of problems in operations research, in, in game theory, whatever. And optimization is key to what we do. Like optimization is a fundamental sort of technique that uh, we use in sort of safety work to improve. How our systems uh, sort of conform to specifications we are always sort of optimizing the performance of our systems not a, to produce specific labels but to conform to the more general problem of to conform to like these general properties that we expect not to the simple properties of well for this input it should be this output. well that's a simple property but you can have more sophisticated properties, And in, in traditional uh, sort of uh, machine learning, you are trying to optimize consistency with those simple properties or reduce your, uh, your loss, your empirical risk. And in, in our case, we are sort of uh, reducing our loss and, or reducing the risk of inconsistency with the specification. What do you think
0: the, the general public or listeners, like what would be their biggest misunderstandings about like AI safety and, and reliability?
1: It's, it's it's OK, that's a very hard question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because there's a lot of them or uh, just, uh, it just depends on depends on who it is.
1: Yeah, it depends on who it is. Right. Yeah, really. um, I think one sort of interesting thing that people need to think about is uh, in the same way that we don't expect every human to be the same. We do. We shouldn't sort of expect that every sort of machine learning system is the same. The second thing is that when we sort of test our machine learning systems and when we sort of make claims about, well, our, our model uh, performs very well on the particular data set, say ImageNet or some other sort of uh, uh, data set for, I don't know, speech recognition or... You are solving that data set. Solving that data set does not imply that you have solved that problem. There's a difference between solving a benchmark or getting per- high performance on the benchmark versus solving the the problem. And then the key question is, if solving a benchmark does not imply solving a particular problem, then what does? And that is a question where I think a lot more needs to be done, because that is the fundamental problem of what do we want, or what do we expect out of systems? When do or how do we articulate, what does it mean to solve image classification, or some other sort of problem? And that is where general uh, public need to think about what is it that they're after and what do they expect out of these systems.
0: Before you were talking about this, this analogy between just like general software debugging and, and security and kind of robustness of AI, uh, do you want to like expand on like what you th- on that analogy and like what, what things we can learn from, uh, like from, from software safety?
1: So there are certain things that we can sort of learn. First of all, like uh, even though it, it is incredibly hard, progress can be made. Right, so we knew that solving the halting problem was undecidable, mm. yet we now have very good tools for termination analysis. So that doesn't mean that we have solved the halting problem, yet it means that for certain instances we can show that things will terminate, right, and the programs do not just like hang all the time, yeah. right, they sometimes do, but, <laughs> but not less, less than long. they used to, less, less than they used to, right. So even though some problems appear incredibly challenging when you first look at them, technically, over time you make progress and you find ways to somehow approximate what uh, what we are after so i think that uh, that is a sort of good thing to learn from the software reliability issue the other thing to sort of learn is when you think about defects in software there are those defects uh, it's it's not enough to say that oh there is a defect but nobody will find it that uh, is something that we should learn because there are always people who will sort of find it, right? And we and
0: Because they're actively trying, or just because there's so many people using something that eventually they run into it?
1: For both reasons. Yeah. So there is nature versus the adversary, right? So nature will find your bug, or the adversary will find your bug. And they will both use it and they will both and you will sort of incur a cost mm. for both cases, yeah. right? And so you have to sort of think about how do you want to make sure that your machine learning system is robust to nature and to the adversary.
0: So you think people kind of systematically underestimate how likely it is that the problems they know are in their are in their software or their AI system will will actually like materialize and create problems?
1: Yeah. So I mean, like nobody uh, starts off by saying, "Oh, like I should I should write a software which can be hacked by yeah. some uh, sort of hacker yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they can and, and use it to steal some information." Right. Everyone, yeah. all every software engineer is trying to make sure that their program does what it says yeah. on the tip, right? But still... But it's hard. But it's hard, <laughs> yeah. right? Even after, like, decades of work, they, we still sort of uh, see that defects in or certain bugs in uh, machine learning or, not like, in normal sort of software systems are sometimes exploited by uh, people who can then use it for various different purposes.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it seems like computer security is just kind of an unsolved problem and, like, a severe ongoing problem, yeah. uh, I guess... <laughs> what would you take from that analogy that like we could have just like many years where we're going to have issues with uh, you know ML not doing what we want and it's going to be like a lot of uh, a real slog for potentially a decade or two before we can fix it up?
1: So in some sense, one thing that we have to take is we have to take it seriously. The second thing that we have to uh, sort of take in is that we have to learn from history, right? There is already a lot of work that has already happened, and the third most optimistic thing that we can sort of uh, take is. That, yes, the systems that we are building are extremely sort of complex, but they're also simple in other ways. There's simplicity in basically the, the building blocks. And that simplicity should help us actually do much better than the traditional sort of software systems, which are messy in their own way.
0: Yeah, can, can, can you explain how they're, how they're simpler?
1: Uh, so we were talking about this whole idea of not asking the system one question, but asking infinite questions. Mm. So that whole, that technique of asking uh, the machine infinite question or reasoning about how it is going to sort of perform, not on just one particular input, but a set of input or a space of inputs, right? That is called abstract interpretation in in the software uh, analysis and software verification community, right? And abstract interpretation, like when I was talking to you about in in the context of sort of neural networks, uh, because our operators are simpler in some sense, there are these neurons which behave in a specific way. Mm. We can capture what sort of transformations they are do- going to do to the input. While in a traditional program, there are so many different sort of types of operators; they have come, they have various different behaviors, and so on. So you can do that as well, but uh, it's, it, it's, it's it's slightly more complicated.
0: Yeah, that kind of leads into my next question, which was uh, like. Is it going to be possible to formally verify safety performance on the kind of ML systems that we want to use?
1: I think a more pertinent question is, would it be possible to specify what we want out of the system? Because at the end of the day, you can only verify what you can specify. And I think technically there is nothing sort of, uh, of course, it's a very hard problem. But uh, fundamentally, I mean, we have solved hard sort of search problems and challenging uh, and optimization problems and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it is something that we can sort of work towards. But a more sort of critical problem is specifying what do we want to verify? What do we want to formally verify, right? At the moment, we sort of verify, is my function consistent with the input-output examples that I, can, I gave uh, this, the machine learning system? Well, that's very easy. You can take all the inputs, in the training set, yeah. you can compute the outputs and then check whether the outputs are the same or not. Yeah. That's a very simple thing. Right? No rocket science needed. Mm-hmm. Now you can sort of have a, a more sophisticated specification saying, uh, well, if I perturb the input in some way or transform the input and I expect the output to not change or change in a specific way, uh, is it true? And that's a harder question, but, and, but we are showing that we can sort of make progress. But what other types of specifications or what other type of behavior or what kinds of rich questions people might want to ask in the future? uh, That is a more challenging sort of problem to, to think about.
0: Interesting. So like relative to other people, you think it's going to be figuring out what we want to verify that's hard rather than the verification process itself.
1: Yeah. Like how do we how do you specify what is a task? Right. A task is not a data set. How do you? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so, so, so I, I think like this, this is something that, I mean, it goes into, like, how this whole idea of sort of, it is a very philosophical sort of thing. How do we specify sort of tasks, mm. right? And when we talk about tasks, we uh, talk about in sort of human language. I can describe a task to you. And because we share some notion of uh, uh, certain concepts, yeah. right, I can tell you, well, we should try to detect whether... Uh, a car passes by, and what is a car? A car has uh, something which has sort of uh, four wheels and something uh, like and drives itself and so on. Yeah. And uh, a child with a scooter, which also has sort of four wheels, sort of uh, goes past, and you say, "Oh, that's a car." And you say, "No, no, that's not a car. The car is slightly different. It's bigger. Basically, people can sit inside it and so on." And I'm sort of describing the task of detecting what is a car in these human sort of concepts that I believe that you and I share and a common understanding of, right? And that's sort of a key sort of assumption that I've made. Um, will I be able to also communicate with a machine in the, in those same sort of concepts? Does the machine understand those concepts? Is a key sort of question that we have to sort of think about. At the moment, we are just saying, oh, input this output, input, this output. We, this is a very poor form of teaching, right? If you're trying to teach an intelligent system, just showing it examples is a very poor form of teaching. There's a much more richer, like we, we like when we are talking about uh, solving a task, we, we are talking in sort of human language and human concepts.
0: It seems like uh, you might think that it would be reliability enhancing to have better natural language processing, that that's going to be disproportionately useful.
1: So natural language processing would be useful, but the grounding problem of does a machine really understand the concepts or is where, it just
0: pretending or is it just yeah, aping it? Oh. Exactly. Interesting. So that you think, is that a particular subset of kind of language researchers trying to like check whether the concepts, the underlying the words are there?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That I think is, is and many people are sort of uh, thinking about uh, this key question. How do we even check that? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that's why we are all here. yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: Interesting. I suppose you just like, do you like, you change the environment, you change the question and then see whether it's like it has like understood the concept and it's like able to transfer it and so on.
1: Exactly. Okay. I mean, so, th- that, so that, is, that is a particular form of generalization testing yeah. where you are testing generalization under interventions. So you do when you intervene and then you say, oh, now can you do it? Yeah. <laughs> so and in some sense, you are sort of testing generalization.
0: Forgive my ignorance, but can you ever kind of check uh, whether a system is like, say, understands a concept by actually looking at the parameters in the neural net or something like that? Or is that just like beyond like, it's like, I can't, I can't like understand you by like checking the neuron connections who so don't understand what that even means.
1: So, so it depends on the concept, right? If I can analytically describe a concept in terms of an equation, then I can do something very interesting. I can say, here is an equation. And now I will try to find consistency between that equation and how the neural network sort of uh, sort of operates. But if I, if I cannot even analytically describe what I'm after, then how would I sort of verify?
0: Yeah, okay. So if you designed a system to, say, do a particular, like, kind of arithmetic, yes. then you could try to find, then you could, like, we know how to search for that. Exactly. But if you have, like, a concept of a cat, not really.
1: Yeah. yeah. So now that the question is basically, how should we change the specification? Like, what should be the specification language in which people can describe analytically? things that they're after. Are there any other yeah
0: parallels between robustness of AI and kind of software debugging and security that you want to highlight?
1: I think there's so many parallels that <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of <laughs> difficult to sort of uh, say. I mean, software uh, testing has gone through its own sort of uh, exercises about static testing and dynam- like static analysis and dynamic analysis. In static analysis, you look at just... The, the software system and try to reason about it without even actually executing it. In dynamic analysis, you actually execute it, mm. right? And so we, we, uh, we do all both kinds of things in uh, in machine learning, right? We test, we actually run the model to see how it is performing. And in, in other cases, we just look at the model structure and say, well, I know it will be a sort of translation invariant because it's a continent and a convolutional network gives us translation invariants. So I don't need to even run it. To show that it's not invariant, right? So there are sort of different types of reasonings that you can do. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, predicting the future, which apparently is pretty tricky. Um, yeah, how, how
0: forecastable do you think uh, progress in machine learning uh, is? And what do you think uh, causes people
1: to, to disagree so much? I don't disagree with many people. So <laughs> 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 I, I, I somehow I, I somehow think that people are talking about the same thing, but from slightly different perspectives. Hmm so like in some sense i i don't find that there are so many uh disagreements even when people sort of try to portray uh, that there are disagreements sometimes if you really uh, look deep inside the arguments they're talking about the same thing
0: i guess i was thinking that there's been surveys of, of asking uh like people in ml and, and related fields you know uh, when do you think we'll have an ai system that can like do like most human tasks at a, at a human level and just get like answers from like five years away to 100 years 200 years never it's impossible it's like uh, all over the map and then just leave someone like me with like just totally agnostic about it
1: so which is a very good example of what i mean by people are answering different questions
0: oh, okay so you think it's like question interpretation is driving a lot of this
1: exactly okay. so what does it mean to be human level sort of be, be good at human level sort of tasks? right yeah. it is interpreted in different ways sort of ways Interesting. So you think
0: if you could get all of those people answering the survey, kind of in the same room, to like hash out exactly what they mean, yes, the, the, the answers or the, or the timelines or the, the kind of yeah, the definitely they would,
1: would, they would, it would change. Okay, of course, like some people would have different biases, right? They would have different more information. Some would have less information. But I, uh, I think the, uh, the variance would in, uh, would definitely decrease. So I guess
0: do you, do you want to comment on like what you think will like AI systems might be able to do in like five or ten years that that would be interesting to people? I guess uh, so someone someone submitted the question. Now, what's the least impressive accomplishment that you're very confident won't be able to be done within the next two years
1: i don't know no, no, again it's a very subjective question as to yeah. what is the like, least <laughs> impressive like uh, uh some somebody might say well changing a baby's diaper would mm-hmm. be a very sort of it's, it's Not, something that everyone can do prosaic, yeah. yeah
0: but on the like, other hand very hard <laughs> it, it's a,
1: like who would trust a robot robotic <laughs> system with their, with, with their like i don't, I don't know myself, yeah. yeah with with a six month uh Baby, so yeah. to 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 get that level of trust for another intelligence, and we are talking about another intelligence, right? We can't make the same sort of assumptions that you, uh, you and I like regularly make about each other,
2: yeah. because
1: we sort of think that they are like in some sense we are the same sort of. Uh, we have so many similarities in our DNA that we are going to think similarly or act differently, and we have the same sort of requirements. You you would eat, I would eat. Like you you need to sort of be there. Like when you're talking about, when you're thinking about a different intelligence, you can't make those assumptions, right? And so it, it will be fine, like, like to ensure to get to that level of trust is a very difficult thing to do
0: one attitude I hear about in terms of like AI forecasting is kind of just people who read the news and they're like my god like these systems now it's like it's killing it at Go we're like killing chess like now it's playing StarCraft 2 it's like doing these amazing strategies It's like now we've got ML systems that kind of write you know uncanny essays that like look like kind of they were written by a human sort of kind of like this is amazing. Like there's so much progress. And then I guess I've heard other people who are like, well, if you put this on a plot and then you like map out like the actual progress, it kind of just looks like it's linear. Well, we've like thrown a lot more people at it. There's a lot more people working on ML than there was 10 years ago. And yet, like in some sense, it seems like it's just linear progress in terms of the the, the like the yeah the challenges that ML can meet. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts on that? It's like, is ML progress kind of impressive at the moment, or is it just like what you would expect? And, and maybe are we like, do we have to throw more people at it because it's getting harder and harder to make incremental
1: progress? So, uh, so my PhD uh, was, uh, it was titled Minimizing Dynamic and higher Order Energy Functions Using GraphCuts. It was like some particular uh, sort of uh, topic in uh, uh, function optimization, support function minimization and so on. And uh, when I was citing the papers in my thesis, I could find maybe like 50 or 60 very relevant sort of uh, uh, papers. And they went from... Uh, 1970s uh, to like the like late 90s and so on. If you look at the same if you do a similar sort of analysis for the type of work that we are doing now, the field is like growing exponentially. The type of things that we, we are sort of able to do is increasingly changing. And I mean there are we are not in the same sort of context because the technologies that we have for research these days, there was no Google Scholar. Mm-hmm. At that point of time, people had to go to uh, to libraries or actually look at journals and mm-hmm. see what paper, what is the relevant paper that came, was published in this in this journal. These days, like uh, when you go to the to a conference, by the time you have reached the conference, the paper is already sort of old, and, and you have like there are two or three iterations that have already happened. So there are a lot more people working in it, uh, working on the domain. There are there are advances being made. Do we think that we can solve the problem completely? Uh depends on what is the definition of the problem, yes, we can solve benchmarks very, very quickly right the The rate of progress at which we are making or we are making on benchmarks is amazing, but I think the real sort of problem will lie in our problem definition. How do we define the problem
0: can you flesh out what you mean by that I'm maybe not not you're like the question is like what do we want it to do
1: really or or how do we measure progress okay right so so we were talking about how do you specify a task? And then the question is, how do you specify an associated metric?
0: To be a little bit facetious, I'm like, well, I want an ML system that can like do my job or can do whatever I do. Uh, is that that's too vague? I guess. Yeah, it is, <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. So I think that's
0: that's the mistake that people make. Is yes, yeah.
1: yes. I think basically once they've tried, once you've tried to formalize it, mm. then it becomes very interesting as, yeah. because then you can actually measure it. Mm. And in some cases, machine learning systems are miles ahead, and in other places, basically. Yeah, they're far behind. Like if you if you ask a, a translator, well, I want to do a sort of uh, some sort of transcription. For example, a transcriber, right? Uh, now we have machine learning systems which can do very very fast transcription and quite accurately. But if you if the transcription uh, quality was needed that um, like you are discussing something at the UN and there could be a war <laughs> if, if something was not <laughs> was trans- transcribed correctly, yeah. you will, uh, a human will still do it, mm. right? Mm. Uh, so I think that's, those are the sort of places where your interpretation of the task and your interpretation of the metric becomes extremely important.
0: So so, so you keep returning to to this issue of, like, we have to be able to specify exactly what we want, like, properly. Uh, I guess, is that something that you think other people in ML, like, maybe don't, like, fully appreciate how how important, how essential that is?
1: I I think people do. People do. Like, like, most of the work in machine learning is about, basically, uh, regularization and, basically, generalization and inductive biases. What are the inductive biases that, basically, certain regularizers have or certain model architectures have and so on? So yeah. people sort of deeply think about these sort of issues. Like, you have some points, but how do you hallucinate between those points? Right? what happens? What is the behavioral system between those points? Yeah. Or outside those points? Right, away from those points. And that sort of key question of generalization, everyone thinks about. But we were sort of thinking about it in sort of an abstract, sort of low-dimensional sort of world, mm-hmm. uh, where those dimensions sometimes did not have meaning. And now suddenly we are... Uh, machine learning is in the real world yeah. where all these things have meaning, meanings and have implications, right? And failures of generalization along various different dimensions have different implications. And just coming to grips with that realization that actually whatever you do will have implications and it's not, it's not, a, it's not about a generalization bound that you can sort of prove. It's about it, that generalization bound has influence in society or has influence in how something will happen in the future.
0: Cool. Let's, let's talk about uh, some advice uh, for, the, for the audience so, so we can get like, people, people helping you at DeepMind or in other, in other ML projects. If there was a, a promising like, ML PhD student who for some reason just couldn't work at DeepMind, uh, what other places would you be like, excited to, to, to hear about them going to?
1: I think there is a lot of uh, machine learning research happening across the board in academia, in various sort of industrial sort of research labs, as well as sort of uh, labs like OpenAI. I think uh, there is a general healthy ecosystem uh, of AI research, and uh, there is no optimal sort of place for everyone. Like, right? there are different roles, and every organization is sort of contributing in its own sort of right. Some people want to really sort of uh, uh, impact. Uh, uh, I don't know, like uh, a specific application, right? And support, it. like it's good for them to work on that specific, on that particular application, and think about these questions that we were t- talking about. How do you actually specify what success means on that specification, right? Some other people could sort of say, "Oh, I'll sort of look at a more abstract level and think about what should be the language in which specifications should be defined," right? So it's like it, there's a whole ecosystem, and uh, people, uh, it's important for them to work on sort of uh, places which allow them to think about the problem uh, which gives them room to sort of develop themselves and learn about the area rather than just apply something known.
0: On that how, how do you think academia compares to industry? I think you, you're briefly doing a postdoc at, at Cambridge before you went to Microsoft.
1: So I've have, I have supervised a number of sort of PhD students in the past and I think academia and industrial research both have their unique strengths. So in academia you have this very uh, rich environment where you are exposed to a number of different ways of thinking, right? And then you have time to uh, sort of reflect upon your own philosophy, your own way of thinking about uh, things. It gives you a lot of freedom and allows you to basically, uh, gives you time to sort of build uh, a philosophy. Compared to that with DeepMind. DeepMind also gives you some rooms to sort of grow and think about your philosophy and so on. But the unique strength of DeepMind is basically where you're working with sort of 20, 30 different people together. So collaboration is something which is key. In uh, If you go to an academic sort of lab, uh, if, if your goal is basically to teach people uh, or basically uh, supervise a number of different uh, students, then taking up a good academic sort of offer or good sort of or, or, a, or a or a teaching or research role in a university is a very good option for you but if you would want to work on a very difficult sort of problem with peers uh then sort of mind becomes a very good role for you
0: I imagine that that you have some role in kind of hiring or recruitment for for the two teams that that you're involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what what reservations do people potentially have about about coming coming and working uh, on those teams at DeepMind, and 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 what do you say to them? I mean, one one might be they don't want to move to London. I was guessing that could be sometimes a sticking point for people.
1: Uh, yeah, so sometimes people have sort of family uh, sort of constraints, and of course. Uh, Uh, they want to be in the place where uh, like, they have certain sort of geographies that they they can be. DeepMind is also very flexible in terms of our geographies, but at the same time, we also have to make sure that if there are projects which have uh, critical mass, like because that's how we operate. We operate in teams in sort of bigger projects which are focused. And so it's important for us to have critical sort of uh, teams. So you can't have one person work on one particular team on one side of the of the planet working on the same sort of project with the other so if there are sort of people if there's a critical mass of people yeah. working on the project in a particular geography that makes sense right? but uh, sometimes uh, that doesn't work out for, for some people
0: yeah, I just moved to London and I'm really loving it a couple of months in. So if that's anyone's reservation, then send me an email and I can tell you about how great London is. It sounds like, I guess, a possible reservation that some people might have is that they don't maybe want to work in such large teams or they don't want to work in such a, such a teamy environment. Perhaps they're used to more like small group in, or like individual research.
1: Yeah, so I think that's that's totally sort of fair. And I think people have different sort of uh, expectation and different they they have different preferences for the type of work they want to do. Right. If you are um, an algorithmic sort of researcher where you want to spend your time sort of uh, proving certain results of uh, certain algorithms, you can do it anywhere. Right. You can think about it. Uh, of course, you basically feedback from peers and so on. Uh, it would be valuable for you, but you can sort of get that by traveling and sort of getting like you can still sort of collaborate with uh, sort of people at DeepMind and so on. So it's not a necessary thing that you have to be part of a very big team. But if you, uh, if you want to, uh, say, build the next uh, AlphaGo or solve something really big, yeah. then you need to be part of a big team. So I think for those kind of people, like those kind of researchers really are attracted by the mission and the execution strategy of DeepMind.
0: So so other than, I guess, passion for, for, for DeepMind's mission, I, what kind of listeners would, would be best suited to, to working here?
1: So um, one of the most important attributes, in my opinion, is the willingness and the hunger for learning because we are constantly learning.
0: Is, is that because the, te- kind of the technology is
1: advancing quite quickly that you just have to always be learning new methods? Exactly. So there are certain uh, sort of roles in which you say, oh, well, I, I went to university, I learned this stuff and now I'm going to apply this stuff. Uh, DeepMind is where you are constantly learning because we are continuously changing. We are making progress in our understanding of what's possible. So you are constantly sort of learning about new techniques, new algorithms, new results, new approaches. So you are sort of a lifelong student, right? So if, if you are comfortable with that sort of situation, where we, like where you are, where you really like to grow uh, continuously in terms of uh, what, uh, in terms of your knowledge base, then DeepMind is a very good place for you.
0: Are there any you know particularly exciting projects or roles at DeepMind that listeners should be aware of that, that maybe they should apply for now or kind of keep in mind for the future?
1: I think like DeepMind is sort of hiring um, a across lot board, of different yeah. across the board, right? Yeah. In sort of technical teams, in research teams, in engineering sort of roles, in communication, which I which is not just important for sort of uh, sort of making clear what we are doing to the to the real world but also to understand how people perceive tasks right this whole question of like what what are we after right so that's it uh, not like one single researcher cannot sort of come up with the uh, the definition of what does that task mean it is a very uh, you have to communicate with people as to understand what they are really after in in a particular problem.
0: Um, well, yeah, well, obviously we'll stick up a link to uh, DeepMind's uh, vacancies page so people can find out. Yeah, what's what's on offer at least at the point that the interview goes out. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your own career. It seems so you were like a rising star at Microsoft and now a rising star at, at DeepMind as well. How did you how did you advance up the the hierarchy in machine learning so quickly? And I guess especially starting from India, where I guess you've like you've had to you know go overseas and like build your reputation somewhere that, that you can grow up.
1: So, I have been extremely sort of lucky in terms of uh, getting some ex- very, very good mentors and very good colleagues. I uh, sort of grew up in India. I did uh, computer science in my undergrad and it just so happened that uh, I had a very sort of good uh, teacher who was uh, in, in our automata theory course and that got me really interested in two formal methods and so on and I did some sort of research during my undergrad years and that led me to microsoft research in seattle and there i was working with a very like one of the best teams in formal methods in the world and uh, i don't think any sort of undergrad, like many undergrads would sort of even dream of sort of working with that team so i was so i was extremely lucky to be to basically be interning with the, with that team and then i spent a lot of time uh, in that in that group, so, so they sought you
0: out, right? When you were you were you were doing your PhD in India, I think, and Microsoft like emailed you and tried to get you in this internship. I mean, is that, is that normal?
1: <laughs> it, it, I was not doing my PhD; I was okay. doing an undergrad. Right. Okay. So so apparently, like at that point of time, uh, Microsoft uh, had started a research uh, lab in India, and uh, as part of that uh, initiative, they had. I think, an internship program where they would ask different departments, uh, different sort of uh, computer science departments across the country to nominate students, and then they will interview uh, these students and um, and then take four or five students from the whole country. So uh, one fine sort of uh, afternoon, uh, I got this email from uh, a research scientist at Microsoft Research in uh, Redmond saying, your department has nominated you. For uh, an internship position in Seattle, in Redmond, and uh, first of all, I did not know that they had nominated me. And this email, like you just get this email out of the blue, and you are like, I don't know what what is this about? And so, and can you meet me like in uh, in so, like, seven or eight hours? And that would that's like one AM or one or two AM uh, India time yeah. because this is like an interview that right. is happening at Seattle in Seattle yeah. time. And I'm like uh, half sleepy, like yeah. I, I, I like answered this sort of interview call, they asked me about uh, what I, I was working on, uh, I told them about uh, some of the things I've done, I had uh, just written a, a technical paper on some of the stuff that I had done, I forwarded that uh, to them as well, and then uh, a few weeks later, uh, I get this sort of letter saying, uh, you should come to Seattle to do an internship. Yeah. So yeah it was well, it was a very
0: strange experience. What, what, I guess what, what can we learn from this' it's just like get, get your supervisors
1: to put you forward for things uh, or so, like So I think at that point of time I had no plans to leave India mm. at that point of time. I, I was uh, my uh, the idea was that I'm going to do my finish my undergrad studies and I will stay in India and I wanted to be close to my family and so on. And then sort of uh, they asked me to do this and I said, okay if, like, yes, this, is, this sounds like a great learning opportunity, so I'll go. And so it's important to sort of uh, take that initiative and sometimes leap into the unknown uh, because you don't know. Like at that point of time, I had I didn't know. Like uh, uh, It didn't make any sense for me to sort of leave. Uh, like I, I should have finished my undergrad and taken up a full-time job. But here I am like taking an internship in a research lab. Uh, at that point of time, I hadn't, sort of no intention of doing a phd and I, w- I went to that research lab did the internship and then they convinced me that i <laughs> need to do a phd and so and then one of the researchers in microsoft research then was moving to acad- academia as a professor and offered me a phd position so in fact i did not even apply for the phd position and somehow i was enrolled in a phd program so it like sometimes these things sort of happen but you have to sort of take you have to just roll sort roll of go it, yeah. yeah roll with it <laughs>
0: Is it the case that, that, that today people who are doing well in kind of ML or, you know, CS degrees, like whether in the US or the UK or, or India, that they're kind of sought out by, by organizations like Microsoft or or, or Google for to, to, to be like a kind of headhunted in a sense? Or, or was that kind of just a, a, something that was happening at that particular era?
1: I, I think uh, people are constantly looking, organizations are constantly looking for the best people. People are what make organizations, right? Organizations are not like, oh, this particular building or this particular room or this particular computer. It's basically, it's people who make make an organization and organizations are constantly looking out for the right uh, sort of individual. And so it doesn't matter if you are sort of uh, at MIT or at Berkeley or at some sort of uh, random university in some sort of random country. Or basically, uh, uh, you, are, you have not even done any sort of computer science education. If you sort of look at the problem from the right perspective and think about it from the right perspective uh, and show that you are, you are making a contribution and you are thinking about the problem in a deep sort of way, then people will seek you out.
0: It seems like you've advanced up the hierarchy in Microsoft and uh, Google uh, pretty pretty quickly. Uh, I guess, what what do you think makes someone, perhaps you, (laughs) a really productive researcher?
1: The most important thing is to always be a student, keep learning. And part of uh, the learning process is sharing knowledge. When you sort of share knowledge, when you collaborate with people, when you talk to people, you learn a lot. Is there kind of a lot of socializing uh, at DeepMind? Uh, like you can call it socializing, but it's more about collaboration. So be passionate about what other people are working on. Try to learn what they're working on. Try to see if there are any insights that you have that might help them in achieve their uh, their mission. I think uh, that is the best way of learning. If you can sort of contribute to someone's success, that is the best way for you to sort of learn from them, to earn their respect, to actually contribute uh, to the organization. So constantly, basically, a, a constant sort of thirst for learning about what people are doing and contributing to what they're doing.
0: Yeah, speaking of constantly learning, I think your, your original background is in software verification and kind of formal methods for that, right? Um, was it hard to make the transition into into machine learning?
1: So I did my undergrad in computer science and then uh, worked in this uh, research group on formal verification then did my PhD in discrete optimization and applying it to do inference in Markov random field or machine learning models uh, applied to computer vision so in fact I did my PhD in a computer vision group where I was developing methods for efficient inference in these more sophisticated sort of models that were all the rage at that particular time. And then I moved to uh, Microsoft Research, and uh, one of the first sort of projects I did in Microsoft Research was in computer graphics. So for a long, long time, I was working in computer graphics and 3D reconstruction and and these kinds of things. At some point of time, uh, Microsoft uh, worked on Kinect, uh, the human post-estimation system in Kinect. And that is, I think, uh, the first time I started uh, thinking very deeply about uh, discriminative learning and like high capacity uh, machine learning models. So I had sort of, I, w- I was a Bayesian from my sort of PhD upbringing, but then the discriminative machine learning uh, sort of uh, type of projects, I first encountered them at at sort of Microsoft. And over sort of time, I naturally sort of... Uh, wanted to sort of combine these two sort of uh, approaches so I did some work I did some projects in probabilistic programming alongside I I worked with a collaborator on game theory so did uh, quite a bit of work on game theory applications of machine learning in information retrieval so like I wanted to sort of learn about a lot of different fields and so uh, once you have worked on these sort of areas and then you get sort of these insights from various aspects of machine learning then when i finally sort of came into more formal sort of machine learning it was not at all very difficult because because you were working on applications you knew already what are the problems so in some sense you have a very big advantage because you know what is the issue what what like the data sets are always biased so what kind of generalizations you would need uh, how would you sort of do that uh, what are the hacks people do to get those generalizations? Can you formalize those? So in some sense, like it becomes very easy for you because you have already been uh, in the in the trenches. So you understand what are the issues involved and then coming back to sort of property learning to sort of think about uh, like what needs to be done comes very naturally to you.
0: As you mentioned earlier, kind of not everyone who wants to help with AI safety and alignment reliability kind of has what it takes to be a researcher. I mean, I, I, said, I, know, I know I wouldn't. What what are kind of other ways that people can potentially help it at DeepMind or, or collaborate with DeepMind? I guess in like communications or program management or recruitment, there's, there's other kind of su- su- supporting roles.
1: So, uh, like all the roles that you mentioned are extremely important. Everyone at DeepMind, from the program managers, uh, from uh, to the AI ethics uh, sort of uh, group to uh, the communications group is playing a extremely important and sort of necessary role at demand. Uh, like these are not optional sort of roles. these are sort of necessary roles. Uh, we were talking about specifications, right yeah. as like trying to understand from people what do they mean by task. At a fundamental level, that is a communication problem, right? You are trying to sort of induce what is it that people are after? what do they want? That is a communications problem. In some sense, Right. So, so like DeepMind is very holistic in that sort of sense. And uh, we, we are not just uh, like a, a bunch of people who are working in optimization or deep learning or reinforcement learning. There are people who are if, uh, coming from various different backgrounds, and who are looking at the whole problem very holistically. Can you describe kind of some some concrete
0: ways that uh, those roles like can, can, can help with uh, alignment and, and, and safety in, in particular for, for someone who, who might be a bit skeptical about that?
1: So uh, think about like ethics, right? The role of ethics, uh, like what the whole ethical frameworks that have been built in the past in the literature and uh, a machine learning researcher or optimization researcher or some one of the best uh, sort of students in the world who has uh, just come out of a reinforcement learning sort of group they might not know about the ethical sort of implications of uh, like how do how research is done or what are the biases that are there in data sets or uh, what are the expectations from society and what are uh, like and similarly like uh, uh, legal experts who know what are the regulations that you need to conform with right as a as a, as a responsible organization so there is a very important role that all these different types of uh, people sort of play in finally shaping up uh, the research program and deployment.
0: Yeah, we've covered machine learning kind of career advice and and study advice on the show before, so we don't have to kind of go over all of it again. But uh, do you have any kind of unusual views about like underrated ways that people might be able to prepare themselves uh, to do useful ML research or kind of underrated places to work or yeah, or build up your skills?
1: I think basically um, working on the real problem and trying to understand... Trying to actually solve a problem and try to actually sort of uh, stress test the learned model, try to break it. That's a great way of getting insights as to what the system has learned and what it has not learned.
0: So you're like in favor of concreteness, like trying to solve an actual problem rather than like staying in the abstract.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to do both. But I think uh, this is quite underrated. To uh, an underrated sort of approach is basically to actually try to build something even if it's a very simple thing and see if you can break it break it how like make it sort of be, uh, behave wrong behave wrong oh interesting okay and then try to understand why does it behave wrong
0: oh interesting so if you're interested in working on alignment then you want to like find ways that ai like becomes unaligned by accident and like actually explore that do you have, do you have any like a concrete advice on how, how people can do that
1: I mean, just take any sort of problem, like uh, you you can sort of take machine learning competitions in Kaggle or like even sort of some of the very simple sort of toy uh, sort of data sets or benchmarks uh, that uh, sort of uh, that people have, like say MNIST, right? MNIST is a very simple sort of uh, data set and benchmark. You can try to play with MNIST and see what kinds of things you can do to the images uh, such that the classifier stops stops recognizing even though the human might would say oh yeah that is a four why are you not saying it's a four and the model will say no it's i don't know it's a one is it possible for people at home to to
0: kind of do the to create like adversarial examples like do their own kind of like optimizing the failure of
1: of ml system you can create your sort of adversarial example by hand right you can just draw a picture (laughs) and say try uh, try sort of detecting this four. if this is a perfectly valid four, i will ask 20 people they will tell me this is a four and I want to create a for which you will you not accept.
0: Yeah. 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 Is that something that I, mean, I guess if someone had been doing that, you'd be like more interested in hiring them potentially. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. They've got the right mindset. They're like, yeah. <laughs> they're throwing themselves into it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, to what extent do you think people can pick up uh, ML or AI knowledge uh, by doing data science jobs where it's, it's kind of incidentally useful and kind of learning as you go, as opposed to like formally studying a PhD? Maybe do you, do you have any comments on like whether people should definitely do PhDs and maybe who who should and shouldn't?
1: Um, I, I don't think, PhDs uh, are at all sort of necessary. I mean, they are uh, sort of, they are a mechanism and uh, that mechanism sort of uh, allows you to build up certain types of competencies. You get a lot of time, you are uh, forced to basically think individually, but uh, that can be done in many different contexts as well. Some people sort of want that kind of structure and in in a PhD, you require a lot of self-discipline. Because for many people, PhDs don't work out because like it's very open-ended and then you don't, uh, you don't have that self. You, you don't uh, without any specific structure, you might not know what to sort of uh, do. Uh, but for other people, it basically gives you an overall framework under which you can sort of explore different ideas and sort of uh, take your career further. But that is not a necessary sort of thing. know even the data science ro- sort of role, if you are really asking the right questions, and if you're really going after why is the problem uh, working in the way it is working and what can I make to break it or what am I, what is the real problem? Those are the questions that you can sort of uh, try to answer and think about in any sort of uh, context, whether it's a PhD or, or a job. Do
0: you have any, have any advice on what kind of people can do to, to stand out such that you or other people at DMind would be more excited to hire them? Perhaps someone who already does know a fair amount of, of ML?
1: I think the most important thing that a person can sort of do is uh, really think about problems which are extremely important that other people are not thinking about. So problem selection is the, the most important, like from, in my view, is one of the most important things in research. Once you select the problem... Yes, you know, okay, there are a lot of different techniques and sometimes you have to invent techniques and so on to solve a particular problem. But selecting the right problem is a very important skill to have. And so thinking about what is the right problem, what are problems that people are not asking today, what are the questions people are not asking today, but they will be asking in two years time or five years time or 10 years time. So thinking about it in that sort of fashion will be... We make you stand out. Make you stand because out. it's difficult, be, but that's
0: why it's impressive. And you'll be
1: ahead of the curve.
0: What's the best reason not to kind of pursue, you know, a career in ML or I suppose like uh, alignment and robustness specifically? What's, what's the biggest downside, if any?
1: I think like at, at the end of the day, everyone wants to contribute to the world, right? Like you want to be relevant and people have different sort of unique strengths. And if you can leverage your unique strength in a different way uh, and channel it in a, in a different sort of role then it's completely fine at the end of the day like people are motivated by different sort of things and working on machine learning is not the only way that you can sort of channel what you want to do and what you want to achieve
0: uh, so it's a question of personal fit to some extent yes. What do you think uh, is uh, kind of the most impressive accomplishments that, that, that have come out of DeepMind? Is it, is it like, you know, something like StarCraft 2, the, the, the flashy stuff that the media covers and the, that I'm impressed by, or are they like more subtle things that, uh, from, from a technical point of view? What so, what, what impresses people inside DeepMind?
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, you're asking, a, like you're asking a question, like pick up your, uh, pick your favorite car. Okay, yeah. And uh, the problem, the only problem is that uh, the uh, cars keep changing every every mm. week, <laughs> and uh, the cars that uh, you would be aware of are have long been sort of uh, superseded. Super, oh, right. oh, really? So even, okay. <laughs> so uh, in some sense, basically, so it's it, you're constantly like you're constantly sort of uh, say, oh yeah, I I really like this stuff. Oh, next day you c- you turn up, well, <laughs> that is old news. I like this new stuff. <laughs> yeah,
0: interesting. So. So internally, it seems like things are changing a lot, like the methods are just constantly evolving.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We should be surprised I if that so. is not happening.
0: Yeah. yeah. Are there any um, approaches to, to robustness that kind of haven't been written up yet that, that your team's experimenting with?
1: So I think that this whole idea of uh, asking infinite number of questions, right? It, it's a very challenging sort of area. In the context of, uh, say, simple models, it's it's hard, but you you can manage it. Hmm. But what does it sort of look like in the, in the context of uh, reinforcement learning, in the context of sort of policies, in the context of sequence-to-sequence models, uh, various different types of models, various different types of applications. These are all sort of very interesting areas that uh, we are currently sort of looking into and uh, yeah, I ho- hopefully we will find something new.
0: So, so there's kind of this stereotype of like software engineers, uh, computer science people, kind of perhaps like lacking some of the soft skills that <laughs> that, are, that are necessary to, to work in an office in these big teams, uh, as people do at, at, at DeepMind and I guess in like lots of other software companies. Do, do you have any ideas for how you know people in computer science can like improve their soft skills, like teamwork ability to to explain things to, to to non-experts?
1: I think the best way to learn these kind of skills is on the job, in the sense that if you really want to sort of build these, like go and sort of try to Uh, talk to someone and help them if you are trying to help genuinely help someone succeed they will be interested in communicating to you so even though you might have barriers and it might be hard you will have encouragement at least from one person uh, on the other end who sort of if you can convince them that you are indeed there to sort of help them and in some sense just that notion of altruism you can gain a lot from that because indirectly, you are learning how to communicate, you're learning a completely new field, the amount that you gain might be even larger than what you have sort of contributed. So definitely sort of reach out to people and try to help them. Uh,
0: are there any last things you want to say to someone who's maybe on the fence and is like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm going to go like do, do this kind of kind of research, but, but I'm not quite sure, like kind of what gets you what, what excites you in the morning to, to, to come in and do this kind of research?
1: So it's about communication. Communication is hard. Like even humans, we we constantly sort of misunderstand. Uh, people sort of have so many misunderstandings in the world, right? We are like the world is very polarized and so on, and and so forth. And so people are looking at things from a different perspective. It's like everyone is is right, but in their own sort of view. And so it's important for us to solve that communication sort of problem. And in some sense, that's what we are doing in machine learning. We are building a communication engine. With which we can translate our wishes or our expectations to silicon-based machines. Can you express what
0: what you really think and want? Yes. I guess some people are like they're worried about AI because it's so different from people. But I guess your is kind of it's like a more extreme version of the problems that people face working with one another and like communicating between themselves and coordinating. Yep. And that's interesting. Okay, final question, I suppose, somewhat whimsically. Um, imagine that things go, go really well and kind of uh, ML systems are able to do most of the work that humans do. And maybe you're out of a job because they're, 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 they're better than you at what you do. Do you think you'd keep working hard for kind of mental stimulation or do you think you'd just go on holiday, uh, throw, throw a big party and, and, and try to just have fun?
1: There are so many uh, YouTube lectures and <laughs> books that are on my read list or watch list so, that I think it will last me a lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> even if I start from today. Yeah.
0: Okay, so it's kind of kind of intermediate, fun, fun learning. Yes. Lots, lots of podcasts and, yeah. and books to get through. Yeah. Cool. All right. My, my guest today has been uh, Pushmeet Kohli. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast,
1: Pushmeet. Thank
2: you.
0: If you'd like to hear some other and uh, sometimes conflicting perspectives on AI reliability and robustness, uh, the episodes to head to next are, uh, in my rough suggested order, uh, episode 44, Dr. Paul Cristiano on how we'll hand the future off to AI and solving the alignment problem. Episode three, Dr. Dario Amade on open AI and how AI would change the world for good and ill. Episode 47, Catherine Olson and Daniel Ziegler on the fast path into high impact ML engineering roles. And episode 23, uh, how to actually become an AI alignment researcher, according to Dr. Jan Liker. I hope you uh, enjoy all of those episodes and there'll certainly be more on this topic coming up on the podcast in future. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.